I think we're going to get started. How's the audio? Can you hear me back there, Shorts? Okay. Did you have a nice birthday, Bob? Good. Thanks for spending the last part of it with us here. Uh, basically, I'm going to talk for about 45, 50 minutes, I think, and take the first half, and then we're going to have a, a, a refreshment break in the middle, and then Mark's going to take the second half. But welcome to Creekside U. This is our second installment. This is uh, Mark Klein's brainchild. In April, he gave us a fantastic overview of eschatology, um, which was really great. And so this is uh, our second installment of that, Defending Your Faith, a Basic Course in Christian Apologetics. So is everyone in the right class? Okay. Good. And I know what you're thinking. This is just kind of strange to see Mike Johnson up anywhere talking to someone without sitting behind a drum. So I'm going to just put this right here, just to make you more comfortable. Um, so I'm not necessarily more comfortable, but um, I do like to hide behind those things. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to be talking about apologetics tonight. And uh, tonight is going to be basically a two-hour class, and also next uh, Sunday night here on the 16th, we're going to kind of do the second half of uh, this course. So before we go any further, I'm going to open in prayer. Let's commit this time to the Lord, creator of heaven and earth. Father, we just uh, thank you for this opportunity to open your word and open our minds uh, to what you would have uh, for us to see here tonight, Lord, and, and just uh, ask that you bless this time. I'd ask that you just uh, open ears and open mouths um, that maybe don't teach very well, um, referring to myself, and just uh, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the reason that we are here in your, your son, Jesus Christ, and that uh, I pray that you may, you may be honored in uh, what we do here tonight, and uh, bless our fellowship together uh, later on as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I guess before we get any further, there's a little bit of a... Uh, heresy I need to clear up. Uh, it's a grave untruth that was proclaimed here in this very church. I guess it was a couple months ago, and uh, I can't remember if it was Mark or maybe Nick Reed that um, made this announcement about this series coming up, and I was um, declared to be a science expert. Um, <laughs> So I want to clear that up right now. There's a difference, obviously, between expertise and interest. I'm interested in apologetics. And all this is to say that you don't need to be an expert in science to be able to see the biblical account of creation offers a, a, the best explanation for diversity of life on Earth, and that the explanation of Darwinian evolution is not a very good explanation. You don't need to be a philosopher to be able to talk about the nature of truth, and you don't have to be a historian to look at the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So apologetics is available for everyone. You do need to be a Christian. We're talking about Christian apologetics here, but as far as expertise, my wife has the degree in biology. I'm, I have a degree in advertising and graphic design. So, But hopefully we all have an interest in apologetics, so that's why we're here. So let's jump in. Let's find my clicker. Yeah, there's the Einstein slide I should have showed you 
two minutes ago. Okay, what is apologetics? We're going to start right off here with, well, this is the extent of our Greek lesson tonight. Uh, I've got a couple of definitions that I thought were helpful. And uh, by the way, you're looking at a, hopefully everyone has, a, has an outline in front of you. It's got some blanks for you to fill in to make sure you're paying attention. You'll note that there's a loose sheet of paper on page four. That was a last minute call on my part to make something a little clearer. So hopefully, you know, use that, use page four instead of what's in your, in your packet. Uh, one definition of apologetics, okay, comes from the Greek apologia, speaking in defense or a story. Apologetics is the discipline of defending a position, often religious, through the systematic use of information. And apologetics is the use of reasoned arguments or writings in justification of something, typically a theory or a religious doctrine. Now, when you hear the word apologetics in the circles of, of Christianity in the church, it's going to be Christian apologetics we're talking about, of course, but there's also such thing as Catholic apologetics and Muslim apologetics and even atheist apologetics. So we're not covering any of those. Uh, but just so you know how that word is used. Also, apologetics seeks to answer questions and make propositions such as, does God exist? There are good reasons to believe that God exists. And if God exists, it matters. Did Jesus rise again? We say there are good reasons to believe that Jesus rose again. And if Jesus rose, it matters. Is the Bible reliable? There are good reasons to believe that the Bible is reliable. And if it's reliable, guess what? It matters. Okay. It matters for everyone. Okay, when I say matters for everyone, it matters for people who don't necessarily believe in Christianity too. And we recognize that, well, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and falls short. That means we all need salvation. We all need Jesus. So apologetics is important because it matters truly for everyone, regardless of your belief, regardless of whether you want it to matter or not. Um, and that's why we do it. Other reasons we do apologetics, we are made to reason. We're made in the image of God, according to Genesis 1.27. God is a God of reason. We can read the Bible and see that he uses reason and logic. And we are made in his image. Now, we are made limited because we're human and we are tainted by sin, our own sin, of course, but we are still a reflection of God in the way we think because he, is re he uses logic and reason and so do we. He also invites us to use reason. Isaiah 118 uh, says, come and let us reason together. Also, the Great Commission is the reason why we do apologetics and this connects to evangelism. We're told to make disciples, Matthew 28, 18. So apologetics is a critical part of, of evangelism, bringing the gospel to the world and preaching the word. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And this is a verse I just, I just like this verse. Philippians 1, 7, and 16, Paul says, In my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, all of you have become partners in God's grace together with me. I am placed here for the defense of the gospel. Paul is more or less stating that his reason for being there in prison and out of prison as he was uh, for defense of the gospel, uh, which is what apologetics is. 
And I really like the, he's pointing out that all of you became partners in God's grace together with me. I kind of look at this as our partnership in doing apologetics as well. So I'm glad you're all here for that. So who does apologetics? Well, you might recognize some of the names on this list. We have Jesus. Okay, John 14, 10 and 11, Jesus calls his listeners to um, consider the evidence of his words and his works. Also, Jesus puts a value on using our God-given reason, using our mind to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind in Matthew 22, 37. We also have Paul in Acts 17. Read it sometime. It's a great example of apologetics as Paul addresses the intellectual elites in Athens. Uh, Peter, great examples of apologetics. Isaiah, we're just going to go down the list. All the prophets of the Old Testament, all the apostles of the New Testament, and pretty much every Christian in history has some experience with apologetics. If you're here as a believer in Jesus Christ, at some point in your life, you receive some kind of reason to believe, whether it was through scripture or through someone pointing you to scripture or through some kind of apologetic endeavor. If someone gave you a, a reason to believe, that qualifies. So apologetics is relevant to every Christian. Which leads us to how we do apologetics. Uh, and this verse, 1 Peter 3.15, is has become more or less a banner verse for apologists as you know the reason, the justification for why you would want to do apologetics. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So that's 1 Peter 3.15. We're going to break it down into three sections and look at those, uh, the relevance of each, each of those three sections. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Okay, right out of the, the gate, we see the, goal, the ultimate goal of apologetics. It's also a prerequisite, by the way, to do Christian apologetics. You need to be a Christian. You need to re already have come to a decision to follow Christ. You're revering Christ as Lord in your hearts. It's also the goal of apologetics, which is the gospel. Okay, it's not enough to get someone to believe that God exists, right? We want people to be believers in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls. Um, so right out of the gate, we have the, the goal of apologetics. And here's the meat, kind of the chunk in the middle. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So we want to give people a reason for our hope and reason for our hope, um, if that makes sense. And what I found is that doing apologetics or having a conversation with an unbeliever, reasoning with them, is a faith-affirming exercise for myself, as well as you know, the goal to reach them, to point them to the truth. It's also something that we, uh, you know, when we do it, it sends us to the scriptures. It sends us you know, to serious study. And that is something that has strengthened my own faith, because I know that hey, my faith is reasonable, okay? So it's something that when you own it, when you know it, uh, you, you can also, I think, much more effectively communicate that to others. But do this with gentleness and respect. This is the manner or the mode that we should do apologetics. And we want to speak the truth in love, as Ephesians 4 directs us to do. And we want to remember the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, without looking at your outline, can you rattle off a few of those? See, I can. I got to look. 
<laughs> the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. I gotta remember to click. Okay, you're gonna notice that one of us is a gifted teacher here tonight. And it's not the one standing up here, okay? So <clears throat> I may forget to click to advance the next frame or leave a section out altogether. Um, this third point, argue not with a fool, okay? To get these first two points down, sometimes we have to decide not to engage in an apologetic conversation with someone, specifically a what we might call a fool. And I would you know, define that as someone who will not reason, will not listen to reason, will not be moved from their position to, that would be one end, and to the other extreme, they're just cussing you out and you know, they're uncivil, they're calling you every name in the book, and of course that's not civil discourse and it doesn't lead to, it won't lead to anywhere, okay? So they're pretty much closed down, hard-hearted. Um, where we get uh, a principle, a scriptural principle for this, uh, Proverbs 26, four and five says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Now I think in this context, it makes sense to, to reverse those. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. So when you see someone, uh, or see something they've written on a blog, or uh, an article or something, and it's just not true, it's a falsehood about Christianity or God, or you know, uh, something that, you just can't leave it alone, okay? We shouldn't be content in just allowing fools to be lost because we want to reach them, because we love them. But at the same time, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you yourself will be like him. So if someone is belligerent, arrogant, you know, it's, it's real tempting, it's real easy to just fight fire with fire and start to mimic that mode of conversation, we don't want to do that. So it's better to just pray for them, but leave them alone. Maybe come back to it later. Arguing is not the same as quarreling. Uh, this is an important point. Arguing is presenting a case as in a court of law or petitioning your boss to allow you some budget money for a certain thing. That's an argument. Quarreling is basically fighting with words, okay? We argue, we don't want to quarrel. And lastly, you just got to remember that we need to leave the results to God, ultimately. Um, it's very rare that you're going to present the cosmological argument for the existence of God to an atheist and they're going to drop to their knees and you know, repent and give their life to Christ with one conversation or with a hundred conversations. But our responsibility is to act in obedience, do apologetics, and leave that work to the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin, who leads people to, to Christ. So uh, we prayerfully leave the results to God. And that's not to say we limit what God can do. I mean, he certainly can, and there are people who have had very evidentialist uh, apologetics presented to them and given their lives to Christ. And some of them are, are great authors of apologetics books. But in general, that's not very common. Any questions at this point? While I get a drink of water.
Okay. So this is the section that I had to kind of retool today <clears throat> after the packet was copied and stapled and collated. So that's why there's an insert in there. But on my first two test runs uh, through this with my test audience, my wife, uh, the first time I gave her a headache and the second time she went to sleep. <laughs> and I fully acknowledge that I'm thinking that probably the first time, my first attempt was just way too, I don't know, it wasn't present, it wasn't put together very well. So I made a second attempt, hopefully it's simpler. Um, if not, you can let me know. We can take an Advil break or whatever. We need to clear our heads. But at this point, maybe you're asking the question, we're talking a lot about logic and reason, okay? And does apologetics actually give too much emphasis on reason? Shouldn't we be walking by faith and not by sight? And you know, God's word tells us that uh, without faith, it's impossible to see God. So is faith unimportant? Short answer is no. Long answer is no. In actuality, faith is the foundation of our belief, so it has to come first. So yeah, that first blank there is foundation. And here's why. First of all, let's define faith scripturally. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. The confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. Verse 3 of Hebrews 11 says, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. By faith we understand. Okay, faith comes first because faith is a gateway to understanding. Uh, another verse, the psalmist and the proverbist tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I've heard one interpretation of this that suggests that well, before we have true wisdom, godly wisdom, before we have true understanding about who God is and his word, we have to have faith. We have to take that leap of faith and worship first, and then we have a growing and a deeper understanding, a true understanding uh, of things of the Lord. So by faith we understand. He stands alone in himself. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in high criticism. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. That's my case. By a, a theologian, a preacher named S.M. Lockridge, and I believe it was in the 60s, and he just gets really worked up, and it's a cool thing. What he's getting at is that uh, God is our most important belief in Christianity. Okay, when I say most important belief, there's a bunch of other phrases that are synonymous with that in meaning. God is properly basic and represents our ultimate commitments, our deepest convictions, our highest authority, most fundamental presuppositions, first principles, axioms, or a priori assumptions. In other words, our most important belief. Those are all basically different ways of saying the same thing. Saint Anselm, an 11th century archbishop, also used in an ontological argument for the existence of God, he suggested that God is the greatest possible being imaginable. And if you can conceive of a greater being, 
then that's actually God. So this is just to get you on the same page with me on the most important belief. That's what that means. So our most important beliefs require faith. Why is this? Because we can't prove our most important belief, which for us is God, by anything more important. So it must be held by faith. Does this make sense? Maybe I should have kept the first draft. It does? OK. Way to illustrate this is Christianity in, is rooted by faith in the God of the Bible. Okay. It's also true that Islam is rooted by faith in Allah of the Quran. And Buddhism is rooted by faith in the teachings of Buddha. So what I'm really saying is any belief system is rooted in faith by that belief system's most basic belief or basic presupposition or what, the, what their most important belief is. So your most important belief appeals to your most important belief. Because in Christianity, we defend Christianity by the principles of Christianity. Or put another way, we say that the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. So what do we call this? It's coming. Circular reasoning, yes. Yes, circular reasoning. Well, it's true with all beliefs. It's not just true with Christianity. Ultimately, we're appealing to something. Like a circular argument is when you appeal to something you're trying to prove, or you're assuming something you're trying to prove. So here's an example of circular reasoning from Hebrews. And I actually heard this this morning from Kyle's message. When God made his promises to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. Hebrews 6.13. Does that make sense? There's no one greater than God for God to swear by, so he swore by himself. See, when you're making an argument, you're supposed to usually appeal to something that's more substantial, more fundamental, a higher authority to prove your argument. In order to prove something, you need something more substantial to ground it or to, to support it. There's nothing more substantial or before God he is uncreated. He is infinite. He is properly basic. He is as great as it gets. So that, in, in a sense, ultimately is circular reasoning in the Bible. Okay, This is Jesus in John 8, 18. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees, recalling an Old, Old Testament principle in a court where you need two witnesses. Um, so to justify his authority to them, this is what he says. He basically appeals to himself again. So at this point, you're probably thinking that I came here to learn about apologetics. And maybe you don't know a whole lot about it, but you're saying this guy doesn't know a whole lot about apologetics because he's just made two arguments that Christianity is rooted simply in faith, ultimately, and that it's ultimately a circular argument. So how, you know, we should be setting ourselves apart from other belief systems. And then I've just said that we're very similar to other, all belief systems in at least two ways. So hang in there. I'm going to get there. So what sets Christianity apart from other belief systems? I think you were asleep by this part. but. Our faith in what we can't see 
make sense of what we can. Okay. Our faith in what we can't see makes sense of what we can see. And we're going to explore this in a little bit. But basically, when we get to faith, when we make that leap of faith, things start to make sense. Okay. But that's the gist of it. And we're going to hash that out in a little bit. Now, it's going to take a little bit of a side trip into logical fallacies. Answer this question, true or false, faith and reason are incompatible. False. I heard a few falses. That is the correct answer. It is false. By faith we understand means that through faith we gain understanding. So one precedes the other. So of course they are not mutually exclusive or they don't cancel each other out as secular society or postmodernism or wherever we're at right now tells us that, that you can't have faith and reason at the same time. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man of reason. I, I don't, I'm not religious. There's religious. Religion versus science or science versus the Bible. Faith versus reason. This is a lie. It's technically called a false dichotomy. False dichotomy or a false dilemma is presenting two opposing views as if that's all there is. Okay, so we're, you know, the secularist is saying, well, you can either have faith or reason, but there's no other options. And the way they phrase the statement, they're trying to get you to believe something that isn't true. For example, you can have peanut butter, you can have chocolate. No, I'll take a Reese's peanut butter cup, please. Okay, there's other options. So don't be fooled by the false dichotomy. Also, faith versus reason is a straw man argument. And if you've seen any political commercials, you've seen a straw man argument. Okay, um, it's a very common argument. What it comes from? Does anyone know this? Know what a straw man argument is? It's when you set up when you set up a straw man, you're setting up a fake man, basically a scarecrow out of straw or whatever. You're propping him up and you're saying, "This is your argument. See how easy it is to knock down." Okay, but in reality, that's not what we're talking about. But they're they're trying to. It's a distraction, basically. They're saying your argument is this when it's actually that. Usually when they put up a straw man, that means they don't really have a good argument. It's also a red herring. And a red herring is an intentional distraction from an argument. Very similar. There's three different ways to describe this type of logical fallacy. And red herring comes from, I believe it comes from a practice of training hunting dogs. And they take really stinky fish and kind of lay them off to the side of the trail to distract, try to distract the dogs to see how well they can stay on the track. So that's where that comes from. Uh, faith and reason. A perfect marriage, really. So by faith we understand. We're on page five. These are two arguments for the existence of the God of the Bible. These are not the only two by any means, but these are two that very well fit kind of on the tail end of what we were talking about with faith being fundamental in Christianity. First is uh, the argument of reason, and the second is the argument from morality. The argument of reason is basically this. The Christian, we claim by faith that logic and reason come from God. We know this because the God described in the Bible is a God of reason, and he created us in his image and invited us to use this reason as well, like we talk about. So that is basically an extension of, of God. That's where we get logic and reason. And 
When I say logic and reason, I think we all kind of know what that is. There's basic principles that everybody knows about that have to do with your identity, uh, the laws of non-contradiction. You know, something can't be both this and its opposite at the same time. I can't be here and on Pluto at the same time. You know, I put on a coat because I'm cold. Um, I'm hungry, so I eat. If A and B, therefore C, a conclusion always follows from the premise. These are basic principles of logic that we really don't think about, but we use every day in pretty much every decision. Not pretty much, every decision we make, we act on these intuitive uh, principles of logic or rules of thought, as they're called. So logic and reason come from God. We claim this by faith. Now we observe, without really using much faith, we observe in the world around us that logic and reason are laws that we follow. We don't just make them up as we go. They're laws that we follow. Um, also, laws of logic are universal and unchanging. So they apply everywhere. They apply to every person, in every location, and in, in every, um, anywhere on the, in space-time, basically. What was logical a thousand years ago, we expect is logical now, and we expect it to be logical in the future. And when I'm acting logically, I expect you to follow the same rules. I'm not saying that you have different rules about logic than me. We all expect that everyone else is going to follow the same rules and that they don't change. And you can't not know the laws of logic. Just try it. Try to unknow logic. It's intuitive. Babies know it. I mean, they cry, they get fed. It's basic logic. Our faith in what we can't see, which is the God of the Bible, makes sense of what we can, the universal laws of logic. Because, as we mentioned, logic comes from God. God is logical, and he made us in his image. Now, the naturalist, and I need to define naturalist maybe really quickly. Naturalism is the belief that nature is all there is. Not all atheists are naturalists, but naturalism is pretty much atheistic. Okay, So no god, no supernatural beings are included in naturalism. So naturalist is the competitor to Christian theism, which is why it's in this illustration. Uh, so naturalists claim by faith, because they can't prove it, they have to claim it by faith, that the laws of logic come from a mindless universe. So remember, on naturalism or materialism or atheism, if you prefer, you have a universe that came about from nothing. Basically, it's matter and motion. And through purely natural processes, because there's nothing supernatural about it, it just developed into what it is now. And somehow, we came about, we developed these laws of logic. There's no God in the picture to, to impart logic to us. So somehow, through natural processes, we came to the laws of logic. What we observe is laws don't come from mindlessness. Can you think of a law that wasn't written or did not have a legislator behind it or people behind it voting it into, into actual law? So laws don't come from mindlessness. That's what we observe. Laws of logic aren't personal preferences. I can't pick and choose what's logical. So it's not subjective, not personal. And we would need logic to invent logic. So somewhere in our evolutionary past, we decided this is logical, this isn't. 
we would need logic to determine that it was logical to think that. Okay, so let your mind oscillate on that a little bit, but it's a sound observation. You need logic to invent logic. You don't just come up with logic because it's logical to do so. There's a standard that's already there. Now, <laughs> atheism, by the way, this bottom portion here, if you're a Minecraft fan, this is the bedrock from the Minecraft game. It's a nod to my son, Levi. Atheism is rooted by faith in, what do you think? Any guesses without looking on your sheet, because it's on there also? Human reasoning? Yeah, basically the laws of logic, our own autonomous human reasoning. Remember, an atheist uh, doesn't believe that there's a God, and so the upper limit of what they are going to base their, basically their, their most important belief is going to be the laws of logic. Okay, that's, we, we put our faith in the laws of logic, but we understand where it comes from. An atheist stops right there. They'll say things like, I believe in logic and reason. I'm a, I'm a man of science or a person of science. And there's no evidence for God. So there's all, they're always looking for evidence. They're always, I'm not meaning to generalize, but that's typically the, the atheist worldview. Um, so which ends up being a circular argument as well. The laws of logic and reason, they're there because, well, it's, it's logical and reasonable to have them. And you're using logic and reason, of course, to defend logic and reason. So that's circular reasoning. Now remember that circular reasoning is only logically fallacious if you're making your appeal to something smaller than your highest authority. Your circles are too small. And when we're talking about ultimate beliefs, it's unavoidable. It, inevitably, we will reason in a circle because we've got nowhere else to go. However, the Christian faith makes sense of what we observe because our logic and reason is rooted in the nature of God and how he thinks. Faith in naturalism does not make sense of what we can observe. Okay, so the argument for morality runs pretty much the same way. Very similar, anyway. A Christian claims by faith that morality, the laws of right and wrong, come from God. God is a moral God. You know, we know this by reading any por portion of the Bible. And he created us in his image. Genesis 1.27, Romans 2.14 and 15 also says that God has put the law, the law of God is written on our hearts, and our consciences bear witness of that. So morality comes from God. Now, what we all can observe in the way we live our lives is that moral obligations are laws that we follow, similar to the laws of logic and reason. We followed the laws. They're obligations to us. They're not just something we feel like doing sometimes. We feel compelled by them. Moral law is universal and unchanging. Okay, same principle applies. There's no, this is right for you, but not right for me, because when you say that, you're expecting your moral truth to mean the same as the person you're talking to. So it's unlivable. That's called moral relativism. Uh, morality cannot be subjective, because anytime you begin to tell someone what they should do, in other words, hey, morality is subjective, believe me. Well, you're making an objective claim. And it doesn't change when we 
in the present, look back on cultures on the other side of the world, thousands of years ago, will condemn their barbarism and, and different things that they've done. And so we fully expect, you know, and this is everybody, Christian, atheist, whatever, we fully expect that their moral law is the same as ours, and we expect it to apply in the future. Um, murder is wrong here, and it's wrong on Jupiter. It's not a civil law, it's not a country jurisdiction, it's much bigger, and we all act and treat it that way. And you can't not know about moral law, okay? Smallest children know, you know, that certain things are right and wrong, and good and evil, okay? You ask any kid who knows who's been, you know, take a cookie away from him or whatever, it's, it's morally wrong, you've done something very evil, or they see, they see something unfair, you know. We all know about it, we can't help it. So our faith in what we can't see, which is the God of the Bible, again, makes sense of what we can. Universal, unchanging moral law. So uh, in contrast to that, the naturalist will claim by faith that morality is a product of human evolution. Okay, they weren't there to see it. You can't test evolution, so it's a, it's, it's a faith claim. Okay, they can't prove it. So they, uh, morality is a product of evolution is a faith claim. Now what we observe, not in the past, but in the present, is that morals and ethics are law-like. They're like laws. They are laws. We follow them. Moral obligation is not subjective or relative, as you mentioned. And we would really need morality to invent morals. So for example, Gronk saves, give me another caveman name. I don't. Joe? Okay, Gronk and Joe are out hunting together and a saber-toothed tiger comes along. Uh, Gronk saves Joe, who's about to be eaten by the tiger. You know, I mean, he's, he's actually in competition with Joe, for survival of the fittest kind of thing. Um, and you, he has no reason. I mean, this is before morality evolved so that, you know, there was no moral thinking or compassion or anything, but Gronk suddenly has compassion on Joe to save him from the attack. And maybe his motivation, uh, secular scientists will theorize that his motivation was reciprocity. If he saves someone, they'll return the favor and save him, and that will allow him to survive and pass on his genes to the next generation because that's the objective of evolution, uh, Darwinian evolution. Um, but the problem is, the minute, then and evolutionists would probably put this first act of or first thought or act of morality way before, you know, Grog and uh, Joe were walking around. It'd probably be an ancestor somewhere down the line, as the theory goes. Um, but they would need a standard already in place for something to be good. I mean, even if it's good to survive and pass on your genes, there's moral good to consider there. And where does the standard for that good come from? So it's impossible, really, to think about or conceive a point in time on an evolutionary time scale where morality would have developed because it would already have needed a pre-existing standard. Okay, Christianity explains this because we were given morality. 
we were given a sense of ethics and, and right and wrong from our creator. So basically, the says things are right or wrong because things are right or wrong, which is another circular argument. So Christian faith makes sense of what we can observe, and faith in naturalism does not make sense of what we can observe. And by the way, the moral argument is a great segue, very often a great segue into a gospel presentation, which, remember, is our goal in apologetics, because morality and ethics, of course, deals with right and wrong, and Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned, and so it's relevant to everyone. So we need a savior. So that's how a gospel message, uh, a message of Jesus, can be integrated into a moral argument. Just a brief list, and this is in your outline of further reading, further suggested reading. One thing I left, one I left off here was a, a Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace, uh, W-A-L-L-A-C-E. He's a uh, atheist turned Christian and a former homicide detective who employs a lot of that kind of thinking, uh, case making for Christianity. Um, you know what he's learned on the job, basically in, in apologetics, in what he writes and, and does. Uh, and my website is way down at the bottom. If you're done with all of those, you can check them out. Um, I have written a few articles on apologetics in there, and I've basically taken arguments that I've had with skeptics uh, and unbelievers online and, and posted them there with some comments. Tom Baird says that I intentionally look for people to argue with online. <laughs> um, I'm not going to deny that. I mean, sometimes it just happens, OK? <laughs> um, so is there any questions? Um, Time-wise, we look pretty good on anything we've covered. Right. So to summarize, some people say, I will not believe until I see what God says, because we're recording this, I'm repeating, uh, that believe you will see. Yeah, yeah, it's the same, same principle. By faith, we understand. Absolutely. Yeah, and people who, for whatever, whatever reason they claim for wanting evidence, you know, they don't arrive to that you know, conclusion by evidence. It's always a faith claim. I mean, the important, I mean, ask any atheist what the most important thing in their life is. They're not going to say, well, the study of science. I mean, really, they're going to say love. They're going to say, you know, family, uh, relationships, uh, logic, you know, doing right, loving your, you know, fellow man, fellow human. All these things we can't get to by evidence. We just have to assume that they're true and worth pursuing. So, yeah, very good. Okay, I think we're going to take, uh, what, 15, 15 minutes? Sounds good for headache, uh, Advil break, or whatever you need. Um, we'll have some goodies back there. Bathrooms are down and around the corner. I don't think I ever did introductions. There's a few, maybe a couple new faces here. I'm Mike Johnson. I'm a deacon at Creekside and involved in youth ministry and music and website and some miscellaneous stuff. And Mark Klein is an elder here at Creekside. So. Say hello. So, all right, we'll take a break.